So you can guess by now that we're going to talk about God's mercy in the text before us tonight. Uh, before we do so, I want to tell you a story, uh, and it's mostly true. No, it's all true. Uh, I, I was stationed in England uh, a long time ago in the military, and uh, then I was discharged honorably, I would like to tell you, and went back uh, to serve uh, as a missionary with a group called the Navigators. And while there, I had the uh, privilege of ministering to American military personnel and a great privilege of leading one in particular to the Lord. He was a rough guy, lived a rough life, uh, quite a severe drug habit, and made a very serious decision to turn his life over to the Lord. And there were noticeable changes in his life over time. However, before he came to know the Lord, he was caught uh, not only with drugs, but uh, not only in possession, but he was selling them to British citizens. This is a bad deal because we were considered guests in the host country, uh, Great Britain. Even though we're there, in my opinion, uh, for their benefit, still, we were guests in their country. So this young soldier was guilty of a sort of a double whammy. He was subject to the British court system and also the military. It's something called the Uniform Code of Military Justice. You go both ways. The uh, military is going to try you. And what's worse is that the British uh, judicial system is going to try you. And this is totally foreign to us. Well, finally, the British court date is set up. He has to go and stand trial and asked me and a few others if we would testify on his behalf with reference to his changed character. Uh, I was uh, reluctant to, uh, hesitant. I didn't know what I was getting myself in to, but I thought I have to do it. A uh, new believer, and so I said yes. So we went, uh, I and he and many of the other young soldiers who were in Bible study with us, and we went to this British courtroom, and it was like a throwback to several hundred years. All the judges and magistrates were all wearing black robes, and they had these powdered wigs. Have you ever seen those kinds of things? Very, uh, it was classic. It was, uh, well, it was intimidating. And then all of a sudden, everyone rises, and they're speaking. I know it was English, but it was like a foreign language uh, to us Americans. And here comes the chief judge, and a very dignified, impressive, and scary-looking guy, and the attorneys are going back and forth, barristers, whatever they call them, you know, and doing their procedure, and then finally it's time for me to be called up. I was nervous as could be, and I shared my testimony. I said, uh, I, 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 I'm not going to defend my friend by uh, suggesting to you that that which he's being charged for is something he's not guilty of. He is guilty. Uh, it is a crime that he did commit. However, if there is a mitigating circumstance, I know of one. The person who stands before you now is entirely different than that person who was arrested. He's a, a new person. In fact, the Bible tells us if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And I uh, stand here to tell you I have seen evidence 
of that radical transformation in this young man's life, not due to his own efforts, that's not good enough, but due to the fact that the very creator of the universe has come to inhabit him as his personal Lord and Savior. And so my appeal to you as the court is that you take this into account. And that was it. Thank you, Mr. Rothberg. You may now take your seat, whatever. So things go on. I got to tell you something, it was not looking good. But you can't tell, you can't re read British people. It's not only a stiff upper lip, it's like a stiff everybody part for crying out loud. You know, you, you don't want to go up to one, hey, have you heard the one about the priest, the rabbi? And the, you do not want to joke with, they don't, it's a different sense of humor entirely. So anyway, uh, uh, the judge leaves and he said, I'll be back with my decision. And I got to tell you something, just looking to the nonverbals and this judge's facial expressions, I'm thinking, this guy's getting the electric chair. That's it. We'll never see him again. You know, I don't know if they do that in England, but they're going to do something like it. It's over. And the judge comes out, you know, not a smile. He's not giving away anything. He doesn't even sit down. He stands up. He says, young man, come forward. Oh, my goodness. So this young guy nervously walks forward, and the judge says to him, I, too, am one who is a recipient of the grace and mercy of Almighty God. I too am one who would stand before him, the judge of the entire earth, with no defense at all, guilty as charged, and yet by mercy. He cast all my sins behind my back and declared acquittal, undeserved pardon for one guilty such as I. And young man, I would be remiss if I didn't today choose to grant you and reveal to you the same mercy with which I was set free. But young man, let me remind you, just as I now am obligated to show my gratitude to the God of mercy who set me free by living a life pleasing to him, so too you from this day forward are responsible to do the same. And he reached into his robes, he pulled out a New Testament, and he read a verse of scripture to him about the mercy of God, case dismissed the mercy of almighty God. It's a true story. There's another one which I think is sort of true. Uh, a mom approached Napoleon, Emperor Napoleon, to plead uh, for the life of her son. Her son was brought up on charges and was going to be executed. Napoleon said to her, I'm sorry, but it is his second offense, and justice demands his death. The mother said, I'm not asking for justice. I'm pleading for mercy. And Napoleon said, but he does not deserve mercy. And the mom said, sir, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. Napoleon was so struck by that, he said, I will have mercy on him, and her son was saved. Her son was delivered. Her son was delivered. Now, I tell you that story because that episode gives us a good idea, can give us a good grasp on this whole meaning of mercy. It is an undeserved pardon given by one who sits in a position of authority to someone who does not deserve it. 
It is, mercy is the withholding of punishment from one to whom it is due. Are you that one? I am. Are you a recipient of mercy? I am. I got one person who loves me. He just loves me. And let me tell you, it's worth every penny I gave him. <laughs> God has mercy on you. But if you keep that up, I may not. Grace and mercy are often attributes attributed to God in the Bible. He's referred to as the God of grace and mercy. But there is a difference between the two. Grace bestows what we do not deserve, while mercy withholds what we do deserve. We deserve condemnation, judgment, and eternal separation. But by mercy, we will not receive those things. Now, Paul has been speaking uh, in Romans to Jewish people and to Gentile people about their position, about their transgressions, about their need for salvation. And the passage in Romans 11, which we will look at a little more now, reveals the astounding mercy of God to all who have sinned. That means to Jewish people and to Gentile people as well. So would you take a look with me at Romans 11, beginning in verse 30. Just a few verses for tonight, but they're powerful. Romans 11, verse 30. For just as you, that is a reference to Gentile believers, just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their, that's a reference to Jewish unbelievers, because of their disobedience. So these, that's a reference to Jewish people again. So these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, Gentile believers, they, Jews, also may now be shown mercy. That's what Paul says. And he has been developing that kind of theme, the place of Jews and Gentiles with regard to God's redemptive plan. God's been developing that. And uh, I want to show you something that I think can be a help to you so that I don't need to summarize what we've covered in Romans chapter 9 and 11. It is a great book, and it happens to be available in our bookstore in a section called Jewish Foundations. It's a special section there, stock full of a lot of stuff we put in it, this being one. It's written by a staff member with Chosen People Ministries, Richard Cohn. He has spoken here at Sagemont on uh, more than one occasion. He is supported by our church and wrote this wonderful, he's an excellent theologian, one wrote this wonderful commentary on Romans 9 to 11 called The Heart of the Apostle. And so I want to recommend it to you if you want to digest some of the material we covered over the last several weeks. This book is a very, very good one. If when you get to the bookstore they have no more copies, just ask one of the friendly volunteers to uh, take your name and order one, and when it comes in, you'll be contacted. So that's a good book. So Paul goes on to say in verse 32, for God has shut up all Jews and Gentiles in disobedience. That's a big case Paul has made. All have sinned so that he may show mercy to all. Is this not a wondrous thing? You know what he did? He, he, he took all of us, Jews and Gentiles, we have this in common, 
And based on our own sin nature, uh, he designated that we have all been shut up in disobedience. We're bounded by it. It's unavoidable. We're locked into it. And we can't get out of it. It's an irreversible human condition, whether you're Jewish, whether you're Gentile, whether you have the law of Moses, whether you have the law of God written on your heart. It doesn't matter. Every one of us are lawbreakers. We've been locked into the atmosphere of disobedience. Nobody in their right mind could deny that. But by the mercy of God. We can receive, in response to our disobedience, that very thing, an undeserved pardon, available to all Jews and Gentiles who by faith accept what Jesus did in payment for our sins. Now, Paul could have moved on now. He could have stopped here and moved on to the rest of what he has to say of a much more practical kind in Romans, but he does not, and I think he does not because he cannot, because God's mercy just overwhelmed him. The concept, I hope it does you too, he was overwhelmed by it. It was a divine surprise. He had to pause at this time so as to praise God for it. He's given us a marvelous theological treatise in the first 11 chapters of Romans. He'll make application in the rest. But before he goes, he just he stopped dead in his tracks. He knows he was the chiefest of all sinners. He knows he was a Hebrew of Hebrews who studied under a great rabbi, a very privileged person, and yet he denied his own Messiah. He knows he was a transgressor who was guilty as charged, and yet he met up not with God's judgment, but with God's pardon and forgiveness entirely undeserved. He said, all oh, my righteous deeds are like rubbish. That's what he said, quite a strong metaphor. He said the law was good, but I'm not. The law defined how bad I am. The law pointed out I have a proclivity to disobey God, even entrusted with much spiritual privilege. And then he said, and God is holy, and no one could stand in his presence. And he has every right to distance me from him forevermore. I should, by right, go on into eternity eternally separated from the God of life. I should die an eternal death. But because God is the God of mercy, I won't. My status has changed. No longer am I an alienated adversary. I'm an adopted son. I'm a part of the royal priesthood, a chosen people, a holy nation. I've been set apart for God's own possession. A loving heavenly father has taken me up, warts and all, just as I am in full measure to be his son. This is the mercy of God. And Paul, even in writing about mercy that God has given in response to our disobedience, could go no further. He just stops and he must pause so as to praise God. And so the theology that Paul has declared up until now, leads him uncontrollably into doxology. That's what it should do. The study of theology ought to lead us into doxology. In fact, what now follows in the text, I think is one of the clearest examples in all of the Bible of a doxology in Scripture. Now, what is a doxology? Well, it comes from two words in the original language Greek, and the first is doxa, doxa, it means praise, and the second is logos or lagos, it means word. So a doxology simply is a word of praise 
offered to God. When you thank God, you thank him for what he gives and what he does. When you praise God, you praise him for whom he is. He is a God of mercy to all those who accept his invitation to receive it. And so Paul now utters the most glorious doxology, I think, in all of Scripture. And here it is, beginning in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Folks, God's wisdom and knowledge is deep. Our understanding is rather shallow. I admitted to you several weeks ago when we covered it, I do not know how to harmonize the two seemingly competing concepts of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. I don't know how to make sense over these two competing notions. Did God choose me or did I choose him? I don't know how to resolve the fight between Calvinists and Arminians. I don't know how to do any of this stuff. What's more, I don't understand God's ways. I don't fully understand why he allows even those whom he loves to go through some very, very hurtful times. I don't get it. And the thing I think I, I most do not understand about God is his timing. His timetable is just perplexing to me. It's always, always slower than mine would be. So this is just a sampling of how much I do not comprehend about Almighty God. And why is it? It's because the depth, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, are simply too deep for us to fully comprehend. So you know what we ought to do? We ought to praise God for what we do understand. Plenty. But we also want to praise God for what we don't understand. Because the fact that we don't fully understand the ways of God means he is to be worshipped. He's not a peer, a companion, an equal, a friend. He's a superior. He's transcendent. We are finite. He is infinite. A God fully comprehended is no God at all. Thank you, God, for revealing the plan of salvation to us. Thank you, God for not revealing everything about you. Thank you that we could not, this side of heaven, entirely mine the treasures of your knowledge and wisdom. The depths of it all is far, far too great. Look, a diver can only dive as far down as he is able to until he suffers for it, and maybe even dies. See, the human body is designed to take the diver down, even a very healthy one, into the depths of the sea only so far. After that, the pressure upon him is too much for him to bear. So, to the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Folks, we can only tap into it so far. After that, we simply cannot bear what he so easily can. He cannot be fully comprehended. It is not that we cannot know him at all. Of course, we could. But we can never get to the bottom of who he ultimately is. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Folks, knowledge is what God knows. Wisdom is what God does with what he knows. He does what he does with great skill. Do you agree? That's his wisdom. And God's wisdom is especially revealed in the cross of Christ, which is foolishness to the so-called wise men of the world. Paul at another place speaks of this. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the word of the cross 
is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs. Gentiles search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block. And to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In no other place, save the cross of Jesus Christ, is God's unbelievable wisdom manifested. On the cross, the Lord Jesus satisfied these attributes of God. He is just, someone must pay a penalty for sin. He's compassionate and loving. Jesus paid it for us. In this nail-pierced hand, and this nail-pierced hand, he satisfied both requirements. He did that which was consistent both with the holiness and love of Almighty God. The world dismisses it as being foolish, but not us. We say, oh, the depth of the wisdom and knowledge of God. The riches of God's knowledge and wisdom run deep, so deep, in fact, that his judgments, the text says, and his ways are unfathomable. See the word unfathomable? It comes from a phrase meaning beyond tracing out and literally refers to footprints that are untrackable, such as those of an animal that a hunter is unable to follow. That's what it's like to try to fully comprehend the ways of Almighty God. They are untrackable. They are unfathomable. Folks, God is great. He is beyond us. He alone is God. Do you agree? Okay, then, I, I want you to repeat this to me if, uh, if you can in clear... Repeat this after me if you can in clear conscience. God alone is God. I am not God. Yeah. But whenever we think of God, oh, no, sorry, that's it. Thank you so much. I'm sorry, I should have given you a better cue. This is just me now. Whenever we think God is not doing uh, what he should be doing, and you know we get that way, uh, we are going against what we just declared. Did you know that? See, whenever we challenge God's right to be God, whenever we challenge his right to act as he chooses, we're actually going against the declaration we just made. Folks, we do not know more than God. We do not possess more wisdom than he does. Let's repeat this again. God alone is God. I am not God. Okay, that's it. We don't comprehend his ways. It hurts when there's loss. We would do things differently than he would and all the rest. But if we believe in what we just declared, God alone is God. I am not God. I'm telling you, the depths of his wisdom and knowledge so far exceed ours. We must let God do things his way. 
Why? Verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Folks, what we know about God and his plan of salvation has been revealed. That's the only way we could know it. None of us could have figured out what we now know about God and his plan of salvation. For who has known the mind of the Lord? I'll tell you who. Only those to whom he has revealed it. We don't discern the ways of God by wit and wisdom, IQ, or education. It's revelatory. If God didn't reveal himself and his plan of salvation, we would be left with speculation, vain philosophy, and guesswork. No one has known the unrevealed mind of Almighty God. What's more, who became his counselor? I want to tell you something. There's never been a time in human history when God came alongside anybody and said, hey, hey, you got a minute? I've been, uh, I've been struggling with this particular, you know, problem. And I know you're busy and stuff, but I, I'm just wondering if you could take a few minutes and help me with this. That has never happened. Nobody here who could say, that happened to me. I became God's counselor. No, no one has become God's counselor. You know why? He doesn't need our advice about anything. And yet, how often are we prone to give God advice about how he should run things? God, if you were good, you should do this. God, if you were listening to me, you should do this. God, if you cared, you should do Nobody can be his counselor, and yet we love to occupy that particular role. Folks, i got to tell you, there are things you and I can give to God, but advice is not one of them. And yet this is the one thing we are most prone to offer him. You know, he would rather that we offer him love and devotion and confidence and trust rather than counsel and advice. The world, however, is filled with God advisors, and yet advice is the one thing we cannot give him. He doesn't need it. But sinners, let's be honest, filled with pride, seem most often to give God this very thing, advice. You know, we say, proud humankind says, uh, this is how you should run the world, God, and if you do not, I will not follow you as God. Can you see that? Have you ever shared your faith with someone who says, I could never believe a God who allowed? That's a person who's saying, God is not God. I am God. I'm adjudicating the ways God runs the universe. I have mined the depths of the wisdom and knowledge of God. I know his mind. I've become his counselor. If he doesn't do things my way, I will not follow him. <gasps> the audacity of, his all, of it all, the text says, who has known his mind, who became his counselor. He's not looking for counselors. You know what he's looking for? People of all ages, children like we saw earlier, older folks, anyone. He's looking not for counselors. He's looking for people to devote themselves to him, to follow him, and to trust him. Verse 35, who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? You know what that means? God doesn't know anybody anything. He doesn't owe anybody anything. He is no one's debtor. The salvation that both Jews and Gentiles can enjoy is based not on what God must give them back for what they have given to him. The salvation anybody, Jew or Gentile, enjoys is freely given 
on the basis of God's grace and mercy alone. Therefore, we cannot place God in our debt. On the other hand, we are indebted to him. Why? Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. For from him, God is the source of all things. He's the beginning of all things. Everything comes from him. Everything starts with him. And through him, everything passes through God. He's the channel of everything. He's totally involved in everything. Nothing can fall outside his plan and purpose. Everything must flow through him. Nothing can be done apart from him. And to him, he's the goal of all things. Everything must end up with God. He's the final purpose and goal of all things. Not only is the alpha, he's also the omega. Not only is he the beginning, he's also the end. Not only is the first, he's also the last. Therefore, to him, be the glory forever. I want to tell you something I'm sure you will agree with. We all prefer happiness over pain, success over failure, health over sickness, prosperity over adversity. But the ultimate purpose of our lives is not to be happy, successful, healthy, or prosperous. The ultimate purpose of our lives is to so live no matter what condition we find ourselves in, that God would be glorified. He can be glorified in happy times and successful times and healthy times and prosperous times, but he can also be glorified in painful times, in times of failure, in times of sickness, and in times of adversity. Folks, we exist to display the glory of God. That's our purpose. Our salvation is meant to put the glory of God on display. This is why we exist. Can you rejoice in this? Can you accept this calling? Can you treasure it? Can you be glad in it? If so, don't forget the final word in this chapter. It's the word amen. <laughs> Paul wants you and I to say amen to all he has written thus far in Romans. Can you say amen to this? In good times and bad, our calling is to put the glorious mercy of God on our behalf on display. Can you say amen to that? Say amen to that. Folks, there was a man named Robert Robinson. Uh, he was saved under the ministry of George Whitfield. Perhaps you know him. Marvelous British evangelist. The man was saved in England. Shortly after that, at the age of uh, 23, Robinson wrote, it was in the 1700s, a very famous hymn, uh, perhaps you know it, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Here are some of the words. Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. This is what he wrote. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Then he wrote, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. At 23, Robinson wrote that magnificent hymn. Later, however, sadly, 
terrible things happened. He wandered away from God, re-entered a dark, dismal, carnal lifestyle, was immersed in sin once again. One day, he was traveling by stagecoach, and he was sitting beside a young woman who happened to be reading her hymn book. She ran across a verse that so struck her, she felt compelled to share it with him, who was the only one there riding with her. She did, and here's what she shared. These words, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Robinson immediately burst into tears. He said, Madam, I'm the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago, and I would give a thousand worlds if I could enjoy the feelings I had then. And although greatly surprised, when she gained her composure, she reassured him that the streams of mercy mentioned in his wonderful song still flowed for him. He was deeply touched. He turned his wandering heart back to the Lord, and he was, by God's mercy, restored to full fellowship with him. Great, great is the mercy of God. Makes you pause so as to offer words of praise. You can understand why Paul did so, paralyzed by the reality of his full and free pardon. He could do no more than offer to this wonderful God of mercy his wonderful heartfelt doxology. And so too should we as a lifestyle. Perhaps you're aware of this, the most popular doxology that we know of today is that which was composed by Anglican Bishop Thomas Ken, who lived uh, mid-1600s to the early 1700s. Do you know this one? Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, Holy Ghost. We ought to just pause and offer that doxology to Almighty God. Would you stand with me? And let's chant this together. Let it be your heartfelt doxology to the God of all mercy, if you have been a recipient thereof. 